This morning we're going to wrap up our series in Revelation uh, today. And I thought that looking at this Revelation passage would be a wonderful way to, to, to finish our series on loving as children of God. And so I want you to kind of think for a minute, when was the last time you visited another church? Uh, maybe you'd been looking for a new church or Maybe you're a new believer trying to find a home church, or you've moved to a new city and you're having to look for a different church. Or maybe you simply felt that where you were at wasn't the place that the Lord had you anymore. Or maybe you wanted to attend a church service while you were on vacation. Or you went to visit somebody's baptism But I want us to think for a moment, how do we know if God approves of a given church? What attributes matter to God? Well, this is a question that needs to be the forefront of each of us in each of our lives as followers of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And we're going to see that the, the motivation for all our works and service as His church matters. And we're going to see Christ unpack and actually look into the heart of His church and look at what really matters. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 together. And what you need to know is that this is a letter in chapter 2 and 3, to the seven churches. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is one of the seven churches that Christ is writing to. And this is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord, may you take this word this morning and may you implant it on our hearts. As verse 7 instructs, may we have ears to hear and may we respond to your truth in humility this morning. Father, help us see what matters and help us see what matters most. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. At the center of this passage is the idea that love for Christ 
is primary to the work and blessing of His people, His church. Love for Christ is primary to the work and blessing of His people, His church. Love for Christ is primary. Love for Christ is primary. In verse 1, it states to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, what do the seven stars and what do the seven golden lampstands represent? Well, chapter 1, verse 20 there at the end, right before we get to the letter, actually tells us. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven golden lampstands, those represent the seven churches. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that there are only seven churches in the church, or excuse me, in, in the Bible? Does that mean that, that there's only kind of seven true churches? What is this talking about? Well, the number seven in Scripture is the number of completion and perfection. And it represents the conditions and characteristics of the various churches throughout history. So these seven churches actually are a complete and kind of perfect representation of the conditions that exist within the church throughout history. It's saying basically, if you look at these seven churches and you put them together, you will see that in some way, the church throughout history has fallen into one of these specific categories. Or maybe many of these specific categories. And so he's saying, I'm going to give you a picture. I'm going to do a diagnostic test. This week, I was, went back for a, an echocardiogram. And I, I look at, I've seen what seems to be tens of echocardiograms. I've had echocardiograms since I was about four years old. And I've, I've looked at them over and over. I've watched, and I've always got my head cranked backwards looking and heads off to the side. I want to see what's going on. And, you know, you always have those things and those tests that make you a little scared sometimes just watching the technician. And if, even if they cough, you're like, is that just because they're sick to their stomach or something because of what they've seen? And you're nervous about what they actually see. And then you're trying to, if you're like me, you're trying to read the numbers. So I'm trying to read all the little information that's up on the screen. And over time, I've begun to understand a little bit about what they're seeing and what they're looking at. Well, Christ has given us a diagnostic test that we don't actually have to guess after. He's saying, I'm going to actually look inside of the church and I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. You don't have to guess what those little numbers are. You don't have to guess what it looks like, but I'm going to show you a real picture of what's going on. And the truth is this morning is that I think verses 1 through 7 actually are at the heart of what we're talking about when we talk about being people who are God's children who are loving, who are loving Him and loving others. See, in verse 1, Jesus is essentially saying that He is the Lord of all churches. Notice what it says. 
the words of him that is Christ, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's what he's saying. Christ's word has complete authority in his church. He's holding up the angels in his own hand over those churches. And then, in the same manner, he's walking through the different lampstands. He's present with him. So the truth is that in and through God's word, we actually experience the presence and authority of God. We actually, through His Word, because it's living and active, experience His presence and authority. This Spirit-empowered Word, the Spirit at work within us. And the beauty of that is that we don't get the freedom to, to then decide how the church ought to look or what the church ought to do because it is Christ who tells us how the church functions and how the church should function. Now, this was important because the church of Ephesus was planted by Paul and then it was pastored by Timothy. And then in John's later years, John comes and is a shepherd at the church of Ephesus. See, Jesus is asserting and affirming that the church is his, not man's. Regardless of who is served there, it doesn't matter. It's still his church. He has authority over it. And he's reminding the church of Ephesus that he does not simply see the outward actions, but he sees the inward heart. And so he begins here by commending their good works. And so we can, we can take joy in this that God commends some things here. This is what he says. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So what's the first good work that's been commended? It's faithful, sacrificial work for Christ and His purposes. He's saying the church has come in, the church has demonstrated a faithful, sacrificial work for Christ and His purposes. They're committed to the things of God. Now notice they weren't lazy. They were committed to finishing what they started in Christ. Both in the church and in their community. They were committed to sharing of His truth with others to the point of weariness. But they did not become weary. It implies a busyness for the things of Christ in the face of trial and opposition. It means that in seasons like we're currently in, in this weird COVID season, that the ministry of God does not stop, but it continues to move forward. That God's purposes haven't changed, but maybe our method should. It means that we're looking for ways to fulfill the calling of the gospel. It means that the way that we did it last February may be different than the way that we do it in September. But we're committed to it. We don't just step back in apathy and say, well, this isn't comfortable. I just can't wait to get back to that. And so he's commending their faithful, sacrificial work. Galatians 6, 7-10 through says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will form the flesh, excuse me, will form the flesh, reap from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God desires us to be fervent. And He's commending the church of Ephesus for their their commitment to God's purpose even when it was difficult. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we committed to God's purpose even when it's difficult? There's a wonderful book out, and many of you may be familiar with it, called Trellis and the Vine. And Trellis and the Vine, that was written by Tim Challies, and it's been a wonderful leadership book, Christian leadership, of how we can walk in leadership as his church. This book was written over 10 years ago. And the final example that Challies gives is what does the church do in a pandemic when it can no longer meet together? Ten years earlier, none of us would have said, hey, this is really possible. And yet, what we're seeing is God still at work and the need to, to bear up and to think creatively and to listen to the Holy Spirit Tell us how we're to minister in a different time in a different season. Because the season is not what is familiar to us, that does not mean that we get to step away from His purposes. I have to be honest with you that in this season, I've been far more connected with our neighbors. It is amazing how open people are. I've gotten to love them, and they were sharing with us that they used to refer to us as the churchgoers. That's how they know us, joking about us, that we were the churchgoers. And what's been great is to, to, be able to, to just be able to share with them and spend time with them, and, and for them to see that, you know what, we're people too. We love Jesus, and our desire is that you might see the love of Jesus through us. Sometimes we need to not be so quick to get back to what was and embrace what is. The second thing that he commends then is intolerance towards unrepentant sin and the discerning of biblical truth. Intolerance towards unrepentant sin and the discerning of biblical truth. In verse 2 it says, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So this was a church that was, one, committed to the purpose of Christ, but they were also committed to not tolerating unrepentant sin. They saw that the believer was more important than the immediate relationship. That their life and their eternity was more important than what was happening in this moment. And it didn't mean that they were harsh towards it. It meant that that they addressed it, that they dealt with unrepentant sin. We know that in this work that they hadn't become weary, and so there is this idea of bearing up that was taking place within the body. 
One pastor put it this way. He said, if someone got into the church and began to live a wicked or impure life, they did something about it. One reason our churches today have no power is because many of our members are living sinful lives. This church, the church of Ephesus, said, we don't want any members unless they're holy people. We must show the world that we are different because we've been with Jesus. If the church has too little influence over the world, it is because the world has too much influence over the church. It's not saying here that we're not to come as sinners. What it is saying is, is that we're coming together knowing that we're here to help one another walk in righteousness, which means that if I'm in unrepentant sin, God has called me to be confronted by my brothers and sisters. Another pastor put it this way, a powerful church and a sinful church membership do not go together. And the worldly church members which we have today, the ones who do anything that the world does, nullify and neutralize the power of the good elements in the church. See, the church is to be reflective of God's grace. A people who walk in the power of Christ, not meaning that they walk sinless, but that when they sin, they're able to repent and to walk in His truth and be renewed and refreshed, and there's grace that overwhelms them. It means that there are those around them that love them enough to tell them the truth. Well, the other part of that is that they didn't tolerate false teachers. They discerned biblical truth. This meant that they knew the Word of God. They knew enough to know that somebody was a false teacher. And so this was a church that was committed to, to doctrine, to understanding the Scriptures. They were committed to teaching and being taught. Well, those are good things. But it's not the greatest thing. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. Jesus says in verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had in first. He's telling the church that a change of heart is needed. Those are wonderful things. But without love, it means nothing. See, in verse 4, what he's essentially doing is he's telling the church that they've lost their first love. And so the change of heart that's needed is a loss of first love. He's saying that they've lost their fervency for the love of Christ, to see that Christ has overwhelmed them, that they were sinners, that God redeemed and allowed to have new life through His grace. That salvation was solely a work of Christ and His work on the cross. It was a gift to be received, not a gift to be manipulated. You see, what happens often when we begin to grow cold towards the love of Christ is we begin to focus on other things, religious things. And what this church had done was they had focused on some things, but they had actually developed a love for doctrine and a love for 
for endurance and a, a love for the outward works rather than for the inward work of Christ. They had taken their love of God and put their love on godly things. Do you see the difference? It's the same as worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. God never designed us to be a worshiper of creation. He designed it to point to, his cre- to the Creator. In the same way, in the church, the outward manifestation of what God has called us to was to be a result of what was transforming and happening inside of our own hearts. And too often we become lovers of the outward. We, we focus on what we're doing rather than seeing that God does care about the motivation. And it is only in Christ changing our hearts that we are able to love people well. Apart from His love, we become harsh. Apart from His love, we no longer endure. Apart from His love, man is glorified, not Christ. We're told in Scripture that they will know us by our love for one another. The world will know us by our love for one another. And when we love Christ, we can't help but not love others. When we love Christ, it will lead us to love others. You see, when we lose the joy of our spiritual life, our love for others diminishes and we begin to look for ways to please ourselves through position, through possession, and through placement. Those three P's that get us each time that are centered all around pride. One commentator put it this way. He says, Every true church is started in love. The people have a love for Christ which makes them work and sweat and pray to get the church going. Then when things are running smoothly, the danger of leaving love out often arises. He continues, We beg people to work and serve and give to the Lord's cause, but none of this would be necessary if people just loved Jesus enough. Jesus has to be our motivation. It's not that I have to participate, it's that I get to participate because of what Christ has done for me. I notice in my own life that when my spiritual walk wanes, my love for people begins to diminish. I become distracted with other purposes. And I want to give up easily on the things and purposes of Christ. I can often tell in my own spirit just from an attitude that's taking place, how I need to respond. And I can tell in those days that sometimes it's just me going and coming back and saying, I need to sit with you, Lord. I need to, to be hearing from your word. I need to be sitting with you in solitude and hearing your voice. And I need to be reminded that Christ is my motivation. 
You see, we're to be a loving church, but the only way to be a loving church is to love our first love, which is Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, was Christ ever our first love? Because sometimes we need to deal with that first. There may be other gods that are sitting on the right and left of our God. So what do we do? Well, he tells us three things to do. He actually says that a loss of our first love is actually sinful. Why? Because it's idolatry. It means that we're loving something first other than Him. And how do we know that? Because He says here in verse 5 that we're to repent. And the only reason that we repent is if it's sin. So what does He tell us here in order to recapture, to re-engage, or to strengthen our love for Christ. In moments where you sense your heart growing cold, in moments where you're weary, in moments where you're discouraged in your relationship with Christ, in moments where, where God seems distant and far off, in moments where you've grown complacent and comfortable in your faith, and apathy is overtaking you, what does he say? He says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. So the three R's exist here. The first is to remember. We need to remember our initial excitement in Christ. You ever find somebody who's just come to the Lord? One of two things happens. First thing that happens is is that it was just a momentary thing. And they're not trained up and the seed never really implants itself. And you see them kind of drift away really quickly. That's one response. The other response is this actual new excitement and refreshment that you see and a person gets excited about knowing God's word and hearing God's word and being a part of what God's doing and in fact in many instances we would say they become totally overzealous right they want people to know they go at it a little bit wrong go at it sometimes a little bit harsh but there's a zealousness for Christ very seldom do people come to Christ and sit right in the middle. When they come to Christ, it's one of those two things most often. Either a temporary kind of cling on and move away. I said a prayer, I feel better, I'm done, and it's all forgotten. Or there's a genuine salvation experience that takes place and they begin to move towards Christ with excitement. Now many of us who have given our lives to Christ have experienced that pull, that initial pull towards Christ. And many of us know what it feels like that after a little while that it begins to fade and wane and reality sits in and life sits in and we begin to, to walk in a place of endurance and we begin to lose some of our enthusiasm and joy. I remember stepping into ministry and somebody asking me about five years, six years in, how you doing? Have you had your first bad experience? And I'm like, man, you are a downer. Like, why in the world do you ask me that question so often? And then when it came, 
I understood. I understood the, the different challenges and the things that were pressing in against me. And I remember thinking, what do I need to do to not be discouraged by what Christ is doing? But how do I long suffer well, as Timothy says, with love and enjoyment? I long suffer well as I remember what Christ has done and remember that Christ is calling us to something that's more than comfortable and more than something we enjoy or like, but rather that our joy is found in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and that He has already overcome. So we start by remembering our initial excitement to Christ and then we repent of our sin. We acknowledge to God, God, yes, I've been, I've been slacking in my relationship with you. I've been lazy in my pursuit of you. I've lost my first love. God, I've put my love in other things. I, I desired being more religious rather than submitted. And then he says here, this interesting statement at the end there of verse 5. He says, do the works you did at first. Return. Return to the things which have brought spiritual growth. Go back. Go back to the days when you were growing and return to those days. Start doing those things again. Being in God's Word. Spending time alone with Christ. Being in fellowship with other believers. Praying for the saints, praying for your neighbors, desiring that none should perish, but that all might have salvation. I think for many of us, it's really easy sometimes to hear that verse that God desires none should perish, and we we make it about God, but what God's saying is that that ought to be our desire as well. We ought to live with a fervency that none should perish. Now notice Christ here. Christ gives us a demonstration then of His love. After coming along, you can imagine that the church of Ephesus might feel like, oh my gosh, we were commended for these things, and then we've just been kind of smacked down here. And notice what Jesus does. He then says this, he says, yet this you have. Oh, by the way, I just want you to know I still love you and I'm going to encourage you in some other things that you're doing. He doesn't just leave them as if they're hopeless. He, he doesn't leave them in a place of shame. But once again, he encourages them. See, what he encourages them with is he tells them that you hate the Nicolaitans, you hate those who are immoral those who are living for themselves. And that's a good thing. But the best thing is still your love for me. We have a picture here of even how to confront one another that when we confront in love, we can commend, we can correct, and then we can encourage. And then notice this final piece of encouragement as we wrap up. 
It says in verse 7, He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This was his promised blessing. What's that promised blessing? That when we respond to the Spirit's leading in humble love, it removes stagnation and allows us to experience the fullness of His promised salvation now. Responding to the Spirit's leading in humble love removes stagnation and allows us to experience the fullness of His promised salvation now. The very answer that we're looking for is actually found in our love for Christ. The very thing that removes stagnation is our love for Christ. And the very thing that produces joy is our love for Christ. You see, what he's promising is he's promising the full benefit of salvation. That they are to eat of the tree of life. That they are to have lives that bear fruit. That they are to be overcomers. Notice that word. He says, the one who conquers. How do you conquer? You conquer by being submitted and pursuing Christ. 1 John 4.4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That is speaking of the false teachers and the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We can no longer cling to, the, cling to the excuse of, hey, I'm a sinner, that's why I sin. Yes, we are sinners, and yes, we will sin, but that's no excuse because Christ says that we are overcomers. And how do we overcome? We overcome by remembering our first love, by repenting of that sin. And then, when we've remembered and we've repented, we return. We return to what has worked before in our pursuit of Christ. Steve Ziesler puts it this way. He says, Accurate self-appraisal is always difficult. Interestingly, the Lord's purpose here is not to have someone steer the whole church in a different direction. No one can do that. The appeal, rather, is made to the individuals who make up the congregation. Do we have ears to hear? Are we listening? Are we willing to face up to what we have become and change direction? Are we willing to reject useless effort and choose loving concern? Our future as a church hangs on the individuals who are following the Lord. Those who are willing to hear from Him and learn to correct this abuse if it is present among them. Those who do so will be given even now an eternal quality of life. May that be our prayer as we wrap up this series on loving as the children of God. May it be our love that overwhelms people, but may it be Christ's love who overwhelms us. And in that love, may we see that we are truly overcomers because Christ is in us and He is greater than the world. Let's pray. Father, may we stand boldly on this truth. God, may we see that we're not going to love others well until we love you first and foremost. So God, we pray this day 
that you would be primary in our life. That our works would be seasoned with the salt that only comes from you and loving you. And may our motivation come from a heart that is committed and surrendered to you. Father, as we remember your love for us, may we move towards you, not away. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.